Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part one of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, the Chicago Black Sox and the 1919 World Series. Now let's get started with our story about the Chicago Black Sox. On October 1, 1919, Chicago White Sox pitcher Eddie Seacott walked to the mound at Redland Stadium as the visiting team's starting pitcher in Game 1 of the World Series. Over 30,000 Cincinnatians had jammed their way into the ballpark. Although fanatical in their support of the hometown team, Reds fans had a hard time believing that the National League pennant winners stood much of a chance. The mighty White Sox were the 1917 world champions, their dominance only disrupted in 1918 by the upheaval surrounding America's entry into World War I. In 1919, the Sox reestablished their superiority, clearly the best team in the American League and a team that was perceived as one of the greatest in baseball history. Eddie Seacott was Chicago's top pitcher, his record of 29-7 and was the best in the major leagues. The 13-year player, a crafty veteran who used both a knuckleball and the eventually banned shine ball to bedevil opposing teams. Seacott's mastery of such quirky pitches earned him the nickname Knuckles. The pitcher was part of a clique of White Sox players who spent their free time apart from a group centered around the Ivy League graduate and captain of the team, second baseman Eddie Collins. On the road, Seacott gravitated towards the company of first baseman Charles Arnold Chick Gandal, a tough streetwise veteran player familiar to all of the habitués of taverns, pool halls, and hotel bars that Gandal frequently haunted. Although the exact origins and catalyst of the scheme to fix the 1919 World Series has never been specifically documented, it is believed that Chick Gandal and Eddie Seacott were first approached in late September 1919 in the vicinity of Boston's Buckminster Hotel by Joseph Sport Sullivan, a well-known professional gambler. Sullivan was an acquaintance of Gandal, familiar enough with the player to pitch the idea of fixing the series. Gandal was noncommittal, and Seacott initially wanted nothing to do with Sullivan, but both men were alleged to have previously discussed such a proposition with other teammates. How the scheme progressed is also unknown, but all concerned would agree on one thing. Chick Gandal would eventually begin to sound out and recruit the players who ultimately comprised the eight Chicago White Sox associated with throwing the 1919 World Series. How any member of such a prominent team could even conceive of such an enterprise seems unbelievable. 
Chicago's reemergence in 1919 won back the rabid enthusiasm for the White Sox in the city of Chicago. It is also difficult to convey the national popularity and prominence of professional baseball across the United States. Over 100,000 miles of telegraph wire would originate in Cincinnati to transmit updates of the series to crowds jamming hotel ballrooms and street corners in over 250 American cities. Despite previous incidents involving alleged fixing of games and huge sums bet on the sport, especially by members of the criminal underworld, baseball still maintained a veneer of innocence, the players revered with a naive enthusiasm that bordered on childlike. The potentially rogue members of the White Sox were motivated by one fundamental issue, money. However, traditional accounts of the Black Sox scandal, especially the book and film entitled Eight Men Out, have always focused on allegations that the tightwad owner, Charles Comiskey, was paying his team the lowest salaries in the league. Hence, the players felt it appropriate to sell out the series out of anger and revenge. Unfortunately, contract data released in 2002 by Major League Baseball and stored at the Hall of Fame library in Cooperstown tells a much different story. In 1919, Eddie Seacott, with bonuses and salary, earned $8,000, the second-highest sum for a pitcher in the league. Only Walter Johnson at $9,500 earned more. Seacott was also the eighth-highest-paid player in the league, and the oft-repeated legend that Reds Game 1 starter Dutch Ruther earned double what he was making is nonsense. In fact, Ruther, a 19-game winner with the highest win total in the National League, earned $2,340. Numbers 11, 13, and 16 in terms of ranking of American League salaries were also occupied by White Sox Buck Weaver, Ray Schalk, and Shoeless Joe Jackson, respectively. Considering salaries alone, in 1919, the White Sox had the third highest payroll in the league, and by the time bonuses were paid out, they would have the highest. But it was not mere greed that drove certain members of the Sox to such a potentially ruinous undertaking. The highest paid player on the team, and the second highest in the league with the exception of Ty Cobb, was Eddie Collins, who was shrewd enough to demand his $15,000 salary upon being traded to the White Sox by the Philadelphia Athletics. Already disliked for his Ivy League background, Collins graduated from Columbia, Players like Gandal hated the second baseman and never spoke with him on or off the diamond. Gandal also had his nose broken on the base paths by the scrappy Collins in 1912 when Gandal played for the Washington Senators, the salary differential and additional element adding to the first baseman's deep animosity. Additional factors prompted several important individual decisions to dump the series. Although he was comparatively well-paid at 35, Seacott was already wondering how many more years he had left, having already experienced arm trouble. The sole support for his extended family, Seacott was carrying a $4,000 mortgage on his recently purchased Michigan farm. Chick Gandal decided that he wanted to remain in California, if at all possible, after the 1919 season. The money from a fix would ensure that he left the major leagues with plenty of cash. Gandal also used the inevitability of a rigged outcome to recruit other players, calling them suckers who would be left out in the cold while their teammates split up a lucrative payoff. This argument seems to have persuaded pitcher Claude Lefty Williams and Shoeless Joe Jackson, individuals who were crucial to any successful implementation of the scheme. 
Almost 100 years later, many elements of who specifically orchestrated the 1919 conspiracy are still unclear, but it is understood that on September 26th, only two days after the White Sox clinched the pennant, five players, including Gandal, Seacott, Buck Weaver, Lefty Williams, and center fielder Oscar Happy Felsch met with Sports Sullivan and another gambler named Nate Evans. The meeting took place in Seacott's residence in Chicago during the season, a room at the Warner Hotel. Only Gandal knew that possibly Sullivan and definitely Evans were emissaries of the notorious Arnold Rothstein. Rothstein, a.k.a. the Big Bankroll, had made millions fleecing gamblers at card and crap games and at his upscale casino in Saratoga, New York. Evans was a part owner and operator of this casino known as The Brook. Initially, the players were offered $5,000 apiece to throw the series, an offer that was immediately rejected. A sum of $10,000 a man was agreed upon, and Williams even suggested that shoeless Joe Jackson, a close friend of Williams, would go along as well. The only potential snag was Seacott's demand for his $10,000 up front, the pitcher adding that if he wasn't paid by the time the White Sox traveled to Cincinnati, the deal was off. When the meeting broke up, Seacott left his hotel room briefly, and when he returned, he discovered $10,000 in an envelope underneath the pillow of his bed. The most important conspirator was now on board. At exactly the same time this meeting was being held, in New York, Arnold Rothstein was having dinner with two ex-ball players turned small-time gamblers, Bill Burns and Billy Maharg. It is alleged that earlier in the baseball season, Burns had spoken on several occasions with Eddie Seacott about the possibility of fixing the World Series. Burns and his buddy Maharg knew that they could never finance such an undertaking on their own, and they traveled to New York in late September in an attempt to recruit Rothstein as their financier. Rebuffed repeatedly, the two gamblers suddenly were invited to a very public dinner meeting at Times Square's Astor Hotel, where in front of Rothstein and several other people, including an undercover cop, probably on Rothstein's payroll, they confidently asked Rothstein to partner with them in a fix that would generate a fortune. Instead of agreement, Rothstein histrionically responded by angrily rejecting the idea and told the two gamblers to leave and never contact him again. Not only was Rothstein way ahead of Burns and Maharg, two penny anti-types he would never associate with, he was already setting up an alibi to distance himself from the fix, especially if it was ever revealed to the public. But that would not be the end of Bill Burns and Billy Maharg in this sordid affair. Undaunted by Rothstein's rejection, they made their way to Cincinnati, unaware of Rothstein's machinations and believing that it was up to them to put together a fraudulent series on their own. On the eve of Game 1, the center of... Baseball buzz in Cincinnati was the prestigious Hotel Sinton. Burns, a former ball player and acquaintance of Chick Gandal, was able to set up a meeting with seven of the eight White Sox in on the fix. Only Joe Jackson was absent. Burns eventually introduced them to Maharg, a former boxer named Abe Attell, and a mysterious Mr. Bennett, a.k.a. David Zelser, a high-stakes gambler with alleged ties to Arnold Rothstein. The latter two men had been aced out of the conspiracy by Rothstein, who decided that Sports Sullivan was more reliable. Unaware that the Sox already had a crooked deal, the four men offered $100,000, paid in installments of 20000 after each loss. The 1919 series a best five out of nine affair. The players agreed to throw the first two games, but allowed that they wanted to win at least one for Seacott, so as not to ruin his shot at a big contract in 1920. 
Incredibly, the conspirators had actually figured out how to get paid to fix the same athletic contest by two different sets of gamblers. Unfortunately, they agreed to do this mostly on credit. Not even Arnold Rothstein was able to control the scope of wise guy money that began to pour in on the Reds. Only a few days before the series, the White Sox were heavily favored, but in the days leading up to Game 1, suddenly the odds had shifted to even money. By the morning of the first game, the odds on the series had actually surprisingly shifted in favor of Cincinnati 7-5, to meaning it would cost you $70 to win 50 on the formerly underdog Reds. This action did not go unnoticed by the sporting press, especially the Chicago Herald-examiners Hugh Fullerton, one of the premier baseball writers in the country. Fullerton had pioneered a crude form of baseball statistical analysis that allowed him to predict the outcomes of previous World Series. His methodology had the Sox winning five games to two, but everywhere he went he heard that the series was in the bag for the Reds. On the night before Game 1, he even ran into Bill Burns, who told him personally that if he wanted to win, he better take the Reds. Seriously alarmed, Fullerton shared what he had heard with pitching immortal Christy Mathewson, who was moonlighting as a sports writer for the New York Times. Mathewson was also concerned, and they agreed that Fullerton would circle any plays on his scorecard that he believed suspicious. Fullerton actually added an optional headline mentioning ugly rumors and warning gamblers not to bet. Most of the 40 papers that ran his column, including his own Herald Examiner, opted not to run the proviso. By the morning of October 1st, Fullerton was even being told by gamblers from Chicago that the series was fixed. He then went to owner Charles Comiskey and implored him to go to American League President Ban Johnson in an effort to do something. Comiskey angrily refused. He claimed to have heard the same things before every World Series. Besides, Johnson and Comiskey hated each other. The last thing the White Sox owner wanted to do was ask Johnson for anything. Fullerton then went directly to Johnson, but Johnson ignored him entirely. Anticipating huge gate receipts, neither Comiskey or Johnson would have even considered canceling the games. From the very first half inning of the 1919 World Series, intrigue and questions surrounded the players eventually implicated in the fix. White Sox right fielder Shane O'Collins led off the game with a sharp single to center. Reds fans, apprehensively unsurprised by an immediately impending onslaught. Eddie Collins failed to advance the runner, bunting into a force out at second base. Still, the Sox had a man on and the heart of the lineup coming to the plate. Next up was third baseman Buck Weaver. Although Weaver attended both meetings in which a fix was discussed, he would ultimately claim that he never accepted any money and played to win at all times. Yet, in this, the very first crucial moment of Game 1, Collins would later maintain that Weaver gave him the hit-and-run sign, but then failed to even swing at the ball, ensuring that Collins would be easily thrown out at second base. Weaver then flied out to end the inning. Collins was immediately suspicious, already apprehensive about rumors of a fix even sweeping his own clubhouse. Seacott got himself in trouble in the first and also helped prompt another legend that has been retold throughout the years. Allegedly, as a single to Rothstein especially, Seacott is to have agreed to hit the first batter to indicate that the fix was truly in. Abe Attell later claimed that a massive national syndicate responded by betting additional huge sums on the Reds. Rothstein, 100000 more dollars as well. Although dramatic journalism, the story is fundamentally ridiculous. 
Money had already poured in from big-time crooked gamblers for days leading up to the series, and Attell was not a particularly reliable source. The only individual who knew the motivation behind this act was Eddie Seacott, and he never specifically addressed the incident, even when under oath in front of a grand jury. Only two pitches into the game, Seacott drilled Red's leadoff hitter Maury Rath squarely between the shoulder blades, and the second baseman was on. When first baseman Jake Dalbert singled to right, Rath scampered to third, scoring on Heine Groh's sacrifice fly. Only three batters into the game, Seacott was already down, one nothing. The inning could have gotten worse, but the Reds actually bailed Seacott out when Dalbert got caught stealing before another walk to Ed Roush, a stolen base before an inning-ending ground ball to short. Seacott faced seven batters and only gave up the one run. To those not on the know, it might have been perceived as an example of the ace pitcher's wily skill. Order seemed to be restored when Joe Jackson reached second on a throwing error, was sacrificed to third, and then immediately driven in on a single by Chick Gandel. But the White Sox wasted another potential rally when Gandel was thrown out stealing before a Swede Risberg walk. Catcher Ray Schalk ended the inning with a harmless fly to center field. The Sox had three men reach safely, only to hand the Reds two outs on a sacrifice and an attempted steal. Twice in two innings, poor execution by some of the key members of the fix had stifled a big inning. Seacott's next two innings were uneventful, and his own team did not even manage a base runner in their half of the third and fourth. Ed Roush led off against Seacott in the bottom of the fourth. Shock signaled for a knuckleball, and Seacott complied, but with a pitch that was markedly slower than usual. Roush, the National League batting champion and eventual Hall of Famer, adjusted and hit a rocket to center field that Seacott figured would easily be over Happy Felsch's head, especially if the outfielder deliberately let it drop in. But Felsch continued on a dead run and at the last second plucked the hard-hit ball out of the air for the first out. With that play, it must have been clear to the Sox pitcher that he would have to take matters into his own hands. He almost hit the next batter, Pat Duncan, before the Reds' left fielder dusted himself off and slapped a hanging curveball for a single to right center field. Sox fans seemed to have nothing to worry about when the next batter, shortstop Larry Kopp, hit a comebacker right at Seacott for what should have been a routine double play. But the Red Sox pitcher hesitated and then threw low to Swede Risberg covering second base. The runner was forced out, but the inning would continue. In the press box, Hugh Fullerton glanced at Christy Mathewson and then circled the play on his scorecard. He would also circle the next play, an infield hit that shortstop Risberg knocked down but could not make a play on. Two on, two out for catcher Ivy Wingo, who promptly singled to right field, putting the Reds up 2-1. to one. Fullerton also circled this play when Sox right fielder Shane O'Collins inexplicably threw to home plate, allowing Wingo to get to second. Although Collins had nothing to do with the fix, it was indicative of how flustered the Sox seemed to be, the throw home a fundamentally dumb play. From the press box, it was clear that both Seacott and his catcher Shawk were angry and upset, but with two outs and the pitcher coming to the plate, a 2-1 to one game was by no means a disaster. But then the pitcher, Dutch Ruther, crushed a fastball with nothing on it into the alley between Joe Jackson and Felsch. By the time the ball made it back to Seacott, the Reds pitcher was on third with a triple, and two more runs were home. In the dugout, the Sox manager, William Kidd Gleason, signaled his infield to gather around their star pitcher, hoping that he could compose himself and get the last out. This maneuver failed when Seacott gave up another extra base hit, a double to Maury Rath, and then a single to Jake Daubert. Gleason slowly trudged to the mound to get his star pitcher and then replaced him with reliever Roy Wilkinson, who finally got the last out. 
but the Reds had broken through with a two-out, five-run rally and chased the Sox best pitcher. They would add three more runs, and the White Sox could do nothing with Dutch Ruther, who went all the way for a 9-1 to victory that was a humbling beginning for the mighty American League champs. Publicly, most of the focus after Game 1 was on the stunning win by the Reds. Although some fans were rabid enough to follow the game via telegraph, most Americans would find out specific details the next morning via their local newspaper. There was no radio or television, no encapsulated highlights and endless talking heads commentary via national television networks. There were merely the dozens of print journalists who would focus on the actual plays in the game. Although Seacott was dreadful, there were any number of innocent explanations for his performance, the most likely that the Sox hurler merely suffered from an off day. Optimistic White Sox fans knew that there was still plenty of baseball left to play. Privately, some journalists openly confronted Seacott. Ring Lardner, who was tight with the White Sox ace, asked him directly what was wrong and got an answer that left him feeling uneasy. To avoid similar interrogations, Seacott locked himself in his hotel room he shared with Happy Felsch. Victimized by both a splitting headache and his conscience, Seacott got little sleep on the night after Game 1. Although there was little public media attention paid to the possibility that Game 1 was tainted, privately the wheels of the conspiracy kept turning. Bill Burns knew that Chick Gandle especially would be waiting for the 20 grand due and payable after Game 1. But when he confronted Abe Attell, who initially alleged that he was a front for Arnold Rothstein, Attell told him that all money was out on bets and the Sox would have to wait. He at least promised payment the following morning, but when Burns tracked him down the next day, the ex-boxer could only produce a dubious telegram stating that $20,000 was about to be wired. It was signed, A.R., Burns then met with Gandalf, Seacott, Williams, and Risberg and attempted to reassure them that money was coming, and unbelievably, the players agreed to bag Game 2, despite having already gotten stiffed. The key to another thrown game would be starter Claude Lefty Williams. Although the White Sox pitcher did not have the vaunted reputation of Eddie Seacott, the hurler blossomed in 1919 with a 23-11 record. Williams would have a hard act to follow, trying to lose, but not in a way that was so blatant that the fix would become obvious. Williams skillfully pitched without trouble for three innings, but then personally intervened in the fourth, surrendering three walks and two timely hits, allowing three runs. Fullerton circled the three walks as suspicious. Williams had averaged two bases on balls per nine-inning game for the entire season. Another walk also turned into the fourth Reds run in the sixth. Although the Sox would get 10 hits off of Red starter Slim Sally, with the exception of two runs after an errant throw from the outfield, Sally would get a complete game, 4-2 win. Again, Williams' complete game outing could be perceived as a decent effort marred by one bad inning. Eight of the 10 Sox hits were from players in on the fix. Happy Felsch also hit the ball hard in two critical situations, denied more by bad luck than stealth. To catch a Ray Shock. Seacott and Williams' dysfunction was blatant and possibly deliberate. After Game 2, he went to Kid Gleason, complaining that both pitchers had switched from called pitches in critical situations. Williams was especially egregious, continually throwing mediocre fastballs when Shock had called for the curve, a pitch Williams usually threw with pinpoint control. Gleason, also shaken and disturbed, went to Charles Comiskey, but what Comiskey did with this information specifically is unknown. When other baseball officials approached league president Van Johnson, he scoffed at these suspicions as alibying by a losing owner. How much and when any individual White Sox player was paid to throw the series has never been specifically determined. However, after Game 2, a payment would definitely occur. 
Bill Burns must have felt that to continue the fraud, he couldn't possibly string along the players without more cash. Burns and Maharg again confronted Attell and David Zelser in their hotel room and asked for money. They would later claim that the room was piled high with currency everywhere, being counted into stacks by Attell, Zelser, and several other individuals. Attell and Zelser initially told Burns that the players would have to wait until after the series, but finally Burns got them to cough up ten grand. Burns was also told to inform the Sox that they should win Game 3. Burns and Maharg then met with as many as four and possibly six of the Black Sox and gave them the money. Gandal, especially, was suspicious, and when he was told to win Game 3, all of the players responded that they would wait and win a game for Seacott instead of Game 3 starter Dickie Carr, a rookie not part of their clique. Carr, 5 foot 7 inches tall, 155 pounds, was 13-7 and seven during the regular season, but was a big drop-off from Seacott and Williams. He was opposed by Ray Fisher, a solid major leaguer who went 14-5 and five in 1919. Surprisingly, Carr produced a three-hit shutout, retiring the last 15 Reds in a row. Chick Gandal, of all players, produced the only offense Chicago would need, driving in Joe Jackson and Happy Felsch with a line-drive single to right field. The Sox added another run on a triple by Swede Risberg and squeeze play by Schalk. In 90 minutes, Chicago was back in the series. Clearly, in this particular game, all of the White Sox played to win. The historical question has always been, why? Did Gandal and the others want to double-cross the gamblers who owed them $30,000, or did they respond to Attell's alleged demand to win the game, especially with the odds now overwhelmingly favoring the Reds? The outcome was more than a surprise to Burns and Maharg, who had bet every dime they had on the Reds, believing Gandal when he said that they didn't want Carr to win. Thus far, the players had been seemingly manipulated like dumb country rubes. Perhaps this was their way of proclaiming that they were anything but. Seacott was scheduled to pitch Game 4, although some rumors of arm trouble or even a season-ending injury swirled before the game. Seacott's performance only added to the historical mystery of the Black Sox. He gave up only five hits in a complete game outing, retiring the side in order in seven of the nine innings he pitched. But both Seacott and other Black Sox figured prominently in plays which meant the difference in a tight ball game. In the second, Joe Jackson led off with a double and was sacrificed to third. Risberg drew a two-out walk, but then successfully stole second, taking the bat out of the hands of Ray Schalk, who was intentionally walked. That brought up the pitcher, a strategic move that Risberg probably anticipated. Seacott grounded out weakly, and the inning was over. Risberg's questionable base running earned him a circle on Fullerton's scorecard. Despite his otherwise brilliant performance, Seacott's behavior in the fifth earned him another circle. With one out, Seacott retrieved a ground ball to the mound and unnecessarily threw hastily to first. His wild throw bounced in the dirt, and the runner, Pat Duncan, wound up on second. A base hit to Joe Jackson precipitated a throw towards the plate that initially held the runners at first and third. But Seacott, the cutoff man, decided to field the ball. His clumsy attempt deflected off of his glove and rolled away from Ray Schalk, Duncan scoring and Larry Kopf taking second. Joe Jackson then positioned himself in very shallow left field to try and stop Kopf from scoring on a single. Instead, Greasy Neal hit a ball over his head for a double and a 2-0 Reds lead. The White Sox could only manage three hits in total for the game. The Reds now had a commanding 3-1 lead in the series. With Lefty Williams scheduled to pitch Game 5, Chick Gandal must have realized that expecting the White Sox pitcher to throw another game on credit was unrealistic. He arranged to meet with Williams after Game 4 and handed him to 
envelopes. Gandal told him they each contained $5,000, one for him and one for Joe Jackson. Williams was one of the few close friends that Jackson had on the team. Both men were sharing a hotel suite during the series. Williams then went back to his room and handed Jackson his envelope. This was far less than both players were initially promised. They both expected as much as 20000 apiece. Gandal also cryptically explained that there was no more money coming, and perhaps the gamblers had called the whole thing off. Williams and Jackson knew they were being cheated. They just weren't sure whether it was by the gamblers or by Gandal. Jackson pocketed his share and later that night told his wife about his role in the fix for the first time. Joe and Katie Jackson were especially close, with Jackson's wife heavily involved in the slugger's business affairs, both on and off the diamond. It was Katie who read his contracts and taught him to write his signature in an approximation of his name, as opposed to the X, which has been attributed much of the folklore concerning Shoeless Joe. Much more worldly and not as socially detached as her husband, Jackson's wife was both appalled and utterly distraught, immediately understanding how her husband's behavior had placed him in potentially serious jeopardy. It was as if she had a premonition that only terrible shame and tragedy could be the result of such a recklessly selfish and stupid act. Almost 100 years after the Black Sox scandal, the legend of shoeless Joe Jackson, created by disingenuous journalists and burnished by Hollywood, lives on in the American imagination. An illiterate millhand, a country boy who escapes small-town poverty and obscurity as a baseball savant, Jackson is perceived as tragically victimized by wealthy owners and slickered by hustlers and cheats who took advantage of his childlike innocence. Ironically, without the backstory of the Black Sox scandal, Jackson would have been consigned to the obscurity heaped on such players as Tris Speaker, Nap LeJoy, Rogers Hornsby, Honus Wagner, George Sisler, and many other stars of the early 20th century, who now are prominent only in the consciousness of obsessive journalists or baseball historians. Most fans, charmed by the shoeless Joe myth, would be shocked to find out that Jackson was controversial even in Chicago in 1918, as the first prominent baseball player who decided to work in a domestic shipyard rather than be drafted into the military during World War I. Initially, all of Chicago, including owner Charles Comiskey, was outraged by Jackson's decision. Although Jackson's phenomenal year in 1919 eventually won back his local followers, hostility was still evident in the taunts of fans on the road and even Reds players during the World Series of 1919. Such hostility caused a great deal of bitterness within Joe Jackson, especially when Charles Comiskey never publicly rescinded his criticism of Jackson's avoidance of military service. Such animus may have been how the player rationalized his participation in a scheme to victimize organized baseball and its adherents. That Jackson was nobody's fool is also evidenced by the fact that he was earning as much from his investments in pool halls and a dry cleaning business as he was playing baseball. Businesses that he personally supervised and operated, Jackson certainly knew the value of a buck, and making $20,000 merely to agree to throw the series must have been appealing to an occupant of the very mercenary world of professional baseball. Much of the momentum for the sentimental effort to restore Jackson to reinstatement and enshrinement in Baseball's Hall of Fame is his actual performance in the 1919 series and his assertion that he played to win at all times. Of all the mysteries surrounding the actual individual play of the Black Sox in the 1919 series, the most perplexing concerns the effort of Joe Jackson. Jackson hit a sizzling 375 over eight games, the best of any player on either team. His 12 hits tied a record for most in a World Series, a mark that would not be broken until 1964. 
Jackson also accounted for the only home run in the series and six of the 20 White Sox RBIs. Jackson fielded 30 chances without an error and even threw out five players on the base paths. Compared to eventual Hall of Famer and team captain Eddie Collins, who hit two twenty-six with one RBI, Jackson's production was exceptional. But a closer analysis reveals an interesting perspective that indicates that Jackson's solid statistics may have concealed a deliberate attempt to lose. In the five White Sox losses, he hit 125 with runners in scoring position, but 385 without runners in scoring position. His only home run came with his team already down 5 nothing in the series finale. A double drove in two more runs in the eighth inning, with the Sox hopelessly trailing 10-1. to In that same game, in the first inning with the Sox already down 4 nothing, with runners on second and third, Jackson could only manage a foul pop-out. Jackson also was paid and kept $5,000, and although it was eventually noted that Jackson was not present at any meeting with gamblers, he is alleged to have demanded money from Chick Gandel after the early games of the series. Perhaps on the urging of his wife, Jackson would subsequently attempt to come clean with White Sox management and disown the money, but this cannot erase Jackson's willingness to take the payoff to begin with. Ultimately, his own behavior would lay the groundwork for a terrible tragedy. If Jackson's World Series record was beguiling, Lefty Williams remained utterly transparent. Pitching one-hit ball through five innings of the crucial fifth game, Williams suddenly collapsed in the top of the sixth. But in this disastrous inning, Williams seemed to have a great deal of help from some of his fellow conspirators. Pitcher Hot Eller led off the inning with a fly ball that dropped between Felsch and Jackson in left center field. Felsch then picked up the ball and overthrew Swede Risberg for an error, enabling Eller to take third. Eller immediately scored on a Maury Rath single, Rath eventually taking second on a sacrifice. After a walk to Heine Grow, Red Slugger Ed Roush hit a fly to center field that Felsch again misplayed, this time falling down as the ball rolled to the wall. Two runs scored and Roush wound up on third, scoring on a sacrifice fly to make it 4 nothing Reds. The White Sox could only manage three hits in the game. Their only serious threat occurred in the first inning when, with men on first and third, Joe Jackson and Happy Felsch stranded both runners with harmless outs. The final score of 5 nothing put the Reds on the brink of a victory with a four games to one lead. The stage was set for the Reds to wrap up a stunning championship in Game 6, 32,000 fans on hand for the occasion. With the odds now heavily favoring the Reds and Dickie Carr surrendering an early 4 nothing lead, the outcome seemed a foregone conclusion. But Carr settled down, and the White Sox began to put together a comeback with a run in the fifth and three more in the sixth, most of the runs produced by players involved in the fix. The game remained tied until the tenth inning when Chick Gandel, of all people, drove in the go-ahead run, and Carr got the Reds out on the bottom of the tenth to pick up his second complete game win. In Game 7, the Reds still had a chance to win at home, but, again seemingly out of nowhere, Eddie Seacott was able to pitch out of continual trouble and secure the 4-1 win. Again, the White Sox involved in the conspiracy provided the necessary offense, Jackson with an RBI in the first and Felsch with a two-run double in the fifth. Suddenly, the White Sox looked like the team that had dominated the American League. Another prevalent legend of the Black Sox scandal was that panicked gamblers with a fortune riding on the Reds for the series then interceded forcefully to ensure that a White Sox comeback would be nipped in the bud. The book Eight Men Out has the eighth game starter Lefty Williams being confronted on the streets of Chicago the night before the game. Williams was allegedly told that he was not only to lose, he was to throw the game in the very first inning, and if he didn't, not only his but his wife's lives would very much be in jeopardy. 
This threat, allegedly orchestrated by a thug author Elliot Asinoff referred to with the pseudonym Harry F., supposedly came directly from Arnold Rothstein. Unfortunately, the sequence of events was logistically impossible, with Williams not even returning to Chicago with the team until midnight. Asinoff would admit later that Harry F. was a dramatic fabrication that he developed after hearing rumors of such threats. That a specific threat was delivered to Williams or any other White Sox player has never been verified. However, in Game 8, Lefty Williams certainly pitched like a man that was scared to death. He threw only 15 pitches, got only one man out, gave up three runs on four consecutive hits, would be charged with another, and left the Sox in a 4 nothing hole before his teammates even came to bat. Williams would also be credited with a dubious historical distinction, the first and only pitcher to start and lose three games in a World Series. Ominously, after the White Sox immediately got runners in scoring position in the bottom of the first, the newly found production of the conspirators disappeared, with Jackson, Weaver, and Felsch going down in order and snuffing out a potential rally. The White Sox would not mount a serious threat until they scored four runs in the bottom of the eighth. By then they trailed 10-1. to one. Shoeless Joe Jackson would ground out meekly to short in the bottom of the ninth for the last out of the game, and the series was shockingly over. Thank you for listening to part one about the Chicago Black Sox. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Betrayal, the 1919 World Series, and The Birth of Modern Baseball by Charles Fountain. Fall from Grace, The Truth and Tragedy of Shoeless Joe Jackson by Tim Hornbaker. Eight Men Out by Elliot Asinoff. And the Society for American Baseball Research Journal article, 1919 Baseball Salaries and the Mythically Underpaid Chicago White Sox by Bob Hoey. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. <laughs>